Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and this story is about the history of Mexico. Well, no, not Mexico. At this point, Mexico didn't exist yet. Mexico did not actually come into existence until the war for independence against Spain. So at this point, it isn't Mexico, it's New Spain. I'm picking up from the last podcast where I was talking about the early history of Mexico. So at this point, the Spanish conquistadors have conquered the Americas. and They have started to set up a new empire. And it was an empire. This is not simply a colony. New Spain, at its height a few hundred years later, was absolutely massive. It went from the tip of South America all the way up to Alaska. Now, in what, in the, what is now the United States, it actually went from the Pacific Ocean over to the Mississippi River. The amount of territory that was controlled by the Spanish absolutely dwarfed that of that was controlled by the English or the French or the Russians or anyone else. The Portuguese got Brazil and a few other parts of South America, but the Spanish got everything else. They had the entire coast of the Gulf of Mexico, from Florida all the way around to the Yucatan Peninsula. Well, sort of. Uh, the Yucatan Peninsula is probably the only part of this entire empire that was able to maintain some semblance of independence, uh, simply because the native Mayans there just refused to be conquered and subjugated. They had been conquered and subjugated by the Aztecs. They allied with the Spanish to overthrow the Aztecs and then refused to bow down to the Spanish. Essentially, that's what happened. So for the next several hundred years, 300 years, the history of Mexico can largely be seen as a struggle between three different groups. Uh, the indigenous peoples, the peasants, the lower class, the poor people. And then you had the extremely, extraordinarily wealthy and power, uh, powerful Spaniards. Uh, and then you had the church, the church, the Catholic church, the mother church. I should say right off the bat that the position of the Catholic Church within the Spanish government at this point was incredibly strong. Uh, they have been described as another branch of the government, and they were to a certain extent. Uh, but more than that, they were their own entity. And they were not controlled by the King of Spain, uh, but uh, by the Pope. And even that, in some cases, were very limited. They were kind of a power in and of themselves, especially the Jesuits. They were extraordinarily powerful in Spain, because of the Reconquista. That is the reconquering. That is the church-led crusades that pushed out the uh, invading Muslims. So the, the, the Muslims coming from up from Africa had invaded Spain. They had taken over the Iberian Peninsula. And then the church-leading crusades to push them back out of the peninsula was successful. Hence, Reconquista, reconquering what had been conquered. And ever since then, the position of the Catholic Church within that area was incredibly powerful, more so than any other European country, uh, even in some cases more so than at the Ita in Italy. Although they did have a different role to play here in the history of Mexico, uh, one that at times was very contentiously opposed to the crown uh, and the wealthy people and also the peasants, uh, but we will get to that. Three groups, the wealthy, the church, and the peasants. So in the beginning, after Cortes has taken central Mexico and he has conquered the Aztecs, the Mayan people were still somewhat independent uh, because they had done most of the actual killing and the fighting that had to be done in order to break the Aztec power and the centralization of power. So the Spanish are there, but there's not many of them. They have alliances with a lot of the Mayan tribes and the Mayan city-states, but they don't actually 
control anything. That immediately began to change when the Spaniards began sending armies over to conquer this part of the world and kind of reinforce their control. Now that there's a power vacuum, the Spanish want to fill it, and fill it, they did. A very simplified version of this history is basically over the next 300 years, but primarily in the beginning, there was a series of wars that were fought by Spanish soldiers. They began to conquer the indigenous populations of Mexico, and then later into South America and north up to what is now California, and in theory, although not in practice, all the way to Alaska. They claimed the lands up to Alaska, but they didn't actually control them. So that's the wealth and the power. They're slowly consolidating for around the next 300 years. On the church side, the Catholic Church was sending missionaries in to convert the local people. Now, at first, this was not very difficult at all. The local populations were polytheistic, and to add a Christian god was simply to add another god to their pantheon, the god of the heavens. It should also be noted that a lot of these local populations were very willing and sometimes very eager to embrace this new religion because it did not involve human sacrifice. As I covered in the other podcast earlier, the Aztec religion was spectacularly, offensively, genocidally bloody. And the Catholic Church, for all of its faults, did not require 200,000 human sacrifices every year. But the church soon realized that the first wave of missionaries had not really done anything more than added another god to the pantheon. They hadn't really converted, by anyone's definition, any of the local population. So what they started to do was to mix Catholicism with the local beliefs. And this should not come as a surprise, because that's exactly what they had been doing in Europe. Uh, the best example of that is Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Christmas. I love Christmas. And I love Christmas trees. And Christmas trees are a celebration of Christmas, but they don't come from Christianity. They come from the Druids. And same thing with mistletoe. Mistletoe is not... Uh, its roots are Druidic in nature. They are not uh, Christian. So here in Mexico, one example is they did, of course, ban human sacrifices, but they also started, started the process of am animal sacrifices as part of the religious practices. And, of course, they recruited the locals, the most famous of which is a man named Juan Diego. Juan Diego had been converted, and on his first trip from his home to the local Catholic church, he got there and said he had just seen a vision after 10 miles of walking. And in this vision, the Lady of Guadalupe came to him and said that they needed to build a church closer to his house. And... Well, there you go. Now, the Virgin of Guadalupe is incredibly famous. He appeared on a cloth on a bush in many, many, many work trucks around the American South and Southwest. Now, spectacularly, unfortunately, it was the second wave of Catholic missionaries that essentially destroyed most of the histories of uh, the Mayans and the Aztec. Although some historians have claimed, and you kind of hear some people say this every once in a while, that they had oral histories and therefore... They are lost. That's not true. They had uh, codices. Uh, these are the records. It is a mixture of writing and pictographs. And that was their record of uh, ancient Mayan and Aztec history. So by destroying them, you're essentially burning the equivalent of literature and books. It is very unfortunate that a huge number of these resources and things were just burned. 
and we do we have no record of them. We know they existed, but we don't have most of them. And that is a as a historian, that is a, a that's a horrible thing. I would put it to the equivalent of the burning of the Library of Alexandria, where there are just many works of history that are simply gone and will never be recovered. The um, Catholic Church, they also tear down places of worship. Uh, the temples, the statue of the old gods were torn down. Even some foods were prohibited because they were associated with the native religious practices. The consolidation of Catholicism within Mexico and within New Spain on a, on a larger sense continued gradually, but it was all-encompassing. It was incredibly pervasive, and it was eventually completed. There were, at this point, a lot of low-level priests that were opposed to this kind of strict in, uh, interpretation and rampant destruction. And they would protest, they would write letters, they would speak out against it, but they were generally ignored. You see that theme throughout this part of Mexican history. Very, very fre frequently, the Catholic Church as an entity was a very powerful voice for the powerful, but the low-level priests were powerful voices for the voiceless. The most famous of which is probably Hidalgo, but I'll get there. So then there's the third group, the indigenous people. Uh, they did not remain one nation, one group. They weren't really at that point. The, you had the Aztecs and the Mayans, but you also had a lot of other um, groupings and tribes. The Mayans were just simply the most uh, all-encompassing and pervasive. And they began to get married. They began to intermarry with the soldiers and the colonists uh, and the masters from Spain essentially through marriage, but also just by having children outside of wedlock, the populations simply began to shift. After 300 years of colonial rule, right around the time of the War for Mexican Independence, there was a census done. And that census indicated that about 18% were pure Spanish, 22% were mixed between indigenous and Spanish. They were Creoles, uh, children of the colonies. And then 60% actually remained uh, completely indigenous, although they were heavily, heavily concentrated in certain areas. So the Yucatan Peninsula, for, exist, uh, for example, which had resisted Spanish control for 170 years very effectively, they remained uh, more indigenous than anything else uh, on a larger scale. So the Spanish have consolidated their control in name, if not in actuality. And at this point forward, they were the most powerful country on the planet, bar none. Significantly more powerful than the English or the French or the Dutch or anyone else. The land that they controlled, as I said earlier, ran from Alaska down to the tip of South America. Spanish legends of the Fountain of Youth in Florida and the cities of gold in the Southwest sparked imagination of many, many colonialists who simply moved to this part of the world and set up shop trying to seek their own fortunes. And they found them. The Catholic Church expanded over to the Pacific Ocean and then up the coast of California all the way to close to what is now Canada. Uh, they were settling churches and cities like the City of Angels, Los Angeles. And where did all this money and power come from? Silver and gold. Well, not so much gold as silver. The Spanish conquistadors did find a large amount of gold when they conquered the Aztecs. But that gold they had found had already been taken out of the ground and given to the Aztecs as 
tribute. So they actually found very little gold in the mountains of Mexico uh, that could be mined, but they did find a huge amount of silver. That the individuals, uh, the groups that controlled the silver mines became spectacularly wealthy. They were called the Silver Kings. And their power, their wealth, began to rival that of the actual Spanish crown. Or at least the representatives of the Spanish crown in this part of the world. And all of this wealth was built upon the back-breaking labor of the indigenous peoples. Mining in the 17th century was not a sophisticated process. It is pickaxes and shovels digging into the ground. That's it. This is hundreds of years before dynamite, so they didn't really have explosives. You dig until you find a vein of silver, and then you literally just hack at the rock following that vein for as long as you can. And as long as they could was about five years. Because that's the average life expectancy once you started mining silver. Five years of exposure to the mercury, because that's how they process the silver ore, and you were dead. You start working because you have to, you work for five years, and then you're gone. Awful. This constant churning workforce had to be replenished by the locals and the populace. Now, the indigenous and the mestizos, the mixed, the Creole children, the children of the colonies, they were mining. And they did not live long, but they sure made a few people very, very wealthy. The wealthy in Mexico City were then using that kind of capital to consolidate their power uh, through land and through textiles. Kind of cottage industries were springing up. Cheap labor from the cities, especially the women in the cities, were employed at incredibly low wages uh, uh, to just to make cloth. And they made that cloth. And that cloth became an incredibly profitable manufacturing base in the now developing colonial Mexico. Diseases swept through New Spain. There's no question about that. Measles, smallpox, many of the old world diseases, syphilis, simply ravaged the population. In some cases, in some areas, the population of the indigenous peoples fell by 90%. They were wiped out well before the Spaniards even arrived because the measles traveled faster than the Spaniards did. And when the Spaniards arrived, a huge part of the population was frequently just gone. So it was very easy for them to take over. And it was these low populations that led to the intermingling of the Spanish and the indigenous peoples and reshaping their populations and their culture, their religion, everything. Uh, the, and at the forefront of the colonization was the Jesuits. That's where the Catholic Church comes back into play. The missions that they settled all up and down Mexico and all up and down California and into what is now Texas, they were not simply churches. They were more like feudal states, feudal land holdings. They were areas of trade and agriculture. They would grow crops, they would make things, they would process, if they could mine some silver, they would do that. And all of this would go through the churches, specifically the Jesuits. Their estates would be given to them sometimes by noblemen or by converts as part of trying to, you stay out of hell by giving the church land is the idea. They did that in Europe quite extensively. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Henry VIII overthrew the Catholic Church in Britain was because they had their land holdings had become so pervasive and all-encompassing that they were outstripping that of the crown. So he kicked them out and kind of... Anyway, that's another story. The similar thing was happening here 
in New Spain, although it had not gotten to the point where the crown was going to take drastic action on that note, although it would later. So the revenues from the Jesuit Hacienda's, the Jesuits' lands, became very, very large, and they became integrated because they really weren't competing with each other. So as a unit, the Jesuits became incredibly wealthy, and that wealth and the control over the land led to power, and that power was concentrated in Mexico City. They used that money not just to hoard it, uh, but they were able to uh, fund their own schools, colleges, estates, more haciendas, more land, uh, their own police forces, and in some cases their own armies, really, on a smaller scale than a large army. But they were able to do all this because of the money that was coming in from the haciendas. And it is into that world that one of the most famous figures in Mexican history arises. Don Diego de la Vega, the fox, Zorro. Not really. I wanted this to be true. I really, really did. Honestly, I looked for probably way longer than I should have to try to find some historical basis for Zorro, some figure in history that you could point to and say, there he is. It's changed, but the story is there. And it's not there. It, there isn't a real Zorro. There is no semi-nobleman with a flashing sword dealing justice behind a black mask. It's just simply not true. There was a half-Irish, half-Spanish bandit that was killing gold miners in California for profit. And somebody a few years after that wrote a book about him that they simply made up and said he was doing it all for revenge. And it was that book that 60 years later actually may have inspired the man that wrote the book about Zorro. But that's it. And that's not Zorro. Unfortunately, there is no actual historical Zorro. And part of my childhood just wilted a little. Because I was a giant fan. So let's just pretend. Zorro comes from a book called The Curse of Capistrano. He's a romantic figure, the dashing swordsman. He is independently wealthy, the son of a nobleman. He has no need to work. He has a secret cave underneath his house. He has servants that see to his every need and also are in on the secret. He dresses all in black and rides around on an all-black stallion, fighting crime behind a mask. He is named after an animal, and although he has no superpowers, he is a highly trained fighter and a force for good. Zorro is Batman. Like, literally. He actually is. Bob Kane, the guy that created Batman, specifically credited Zorro as his inspiration. Zorro was a series of stories, uh, novels, a uh, 57 of them, depicting a romantic version of what is now uh, California. They started off very strong. The latter entries seemed to lack power, little kind of lack punch. The later titles become, uh, well, less impactful. So it begins with The Curse of Capistrano. And Zorro hunts a jackal. Zorro rides again. The Blade of Zorro. Zorro strikes again. Zorro fights again. But then it becomes Zorro plucks a pigeon, Zorro saves an American, Zorro frees some slaves. And then you end in the 1950s with Zorro's hot tortillas, Zorro gives evidence, and for some reason, Zorro gathers taxes. Poor Zorro. I guess after Batman, he had a hard time 
finding work. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Jesuits become too powerful. The money and the uh, their influence became a competition for the crown. They became so wealthy and so powerful that they were actually expelled from Spain uh, and from New Spain and from Mexico. They were banned. They were operating in opposition with the crown or at least competition, if not opposition with the crown. And so the king said, no, you're gone. And he kicked them out. And that was approximately the same time. And it was actually because of this sort of that the king sent over a representative to Mexico to find out what was going on. This is King Carlos III. This is New Spain at the height of its power, and he wants to know what's happening. So he sends over a representative named Galvez. Galvez was given essentially unlimited power. This man could do anything. His order, his words were law. He, he was not to be questioned. He was above any review. He's custodies... Ipsos custodes. Who watches the watchers? Uh, nobody in this case. He was above everything. He spent seven years in Mexico and he looked at everything. He traveled all over the country. He talked to lots of different people from the priests to the peasants to the wealthy, everyone. Uh, the, the lower priests, the higher priests, everyone. And it was he who finally discovered, first discovered and documented just in how incredibly corrupt these groups and organizations were. The rich people would simply bribe the officials in order to do whatever they wanted. And sometimes this is just to save money in uh, kind of avoiding taxes. And sometimes it was to look the other way while they were breaking the law. Sometimes it was to get away with literal murder, the killing of indigenous peoples and literally just taking their land. Galvez is the one that actually realized that the claims that Spain had to control all of that land were facetious. They were effective only in a very limited way, and the real power in those areas was not the Spanish crown, it was the church. And in many cases, it was the Jesuits, who operated as a government, they collected taxes on their land holdings, they controlled trade, they controlled everything. They were so large that everything went through them, and the Jesuits profited off them, which means that the crown wasn't and that is one of the primary reasons why the Jesuits were expelled from all of Spain just a few years later. Basically, the crown is consolidating, and the consolidation is happening in the name of the crown, but they find out that they it's the Jesuits who are actually doing the controlling. You can't consolidate or control anything without stopping the Jesuits, so they do. That's not fair, but that's what they did. The Jesuits took it from the indigenous peoples, and then the crown took it from the Jesuits. The church had controlled them. What did they control? The land. And who did they control? The peasants. And what did they do with the money? They reinvested it. That's where schools and colleges and groups come in. And many, many wealthy Spaniards would, they realized that the power lay with the Jesuits, so they would have their children educated in Jesuit schools, which were funded by the money that they made from the haciendas and from the lands. And the educated elite would then move into the upper orders of the Jesuits, where they would continue to control and expand and live lives of luxury which is diametrically opposed to what the other groups within the Catholic Church were doing, especially specifically like the Franciscans who had sworn oaths of uh, poverty and of service. The Jesuits definitely did not. So it was that Hidalgo, the priest who inspired and started the Mexican War for Independence.
Towards the end of the 1700s, the wars of Charles III and Charles IV, his son, had become extremely expensive, and he was trying to get as much money as he could from New Spain. This is after the Jesuits had been expelled, and he's just trying to squeeze the land. And squeeze them, he did. Raising taxes and forcing the peasants to work uh, even longer and harder and working them to death in many cases, many, many cases. Charles was not a good ruler. It did not help that he was incompetent. He did not have a good grasp on, well, anything. He was well known to be simple-minded. But before the chaos of his own incompetence could sweep through New Spain, the other forces began to work uh, in the United States. The revolution to overthrow the yoke of European rule to gain independence began in the, U in the U.S., and that spark kind of spread. The Mexico would soon follow with the Mexican Revolution. Well, no. The Mexican Revolution began in 1910. In 1810, it's the Mexican War for Independence. They are not the same thing. In America, the we kind of those two terms are interchangeable. The American Revolution, the American War for Independence, they are the same war. But in Mexico, the Mexican Revolution and the Mexican War for Independence are not. They are two different wars that were fought 100 years apart, almost 100 years exactly to the day, depending on how you want to define it. And in 1810, the Mexican War for Independence began with Father Hidalgo. In history, there are many, many things that do not live up to what we wouldn't consider to be dramatic interpretations. They are stylized for movies, for TV shows, when the reality may have been much simpler. Uh, they uh, seem to be somewhat underwhelming because we've become accustomed to these big moments, these Hollywood moments. And so the reality sometimes is a little bit underwhelming and disappointing. This is not one of those. Father Hidalgo, standing in in the town square and giving his speech, you could take the exact place, the exact time, the people, the words, put them up on the big screen, put a little bit of music behind it, and it would feel like the climax to a fantastic historical movie. Now, I obviously can't do that on the podcast, but I'm going to try to set the stage. It's September in 1810. This is a small town in central Mexico that had been extraordinarily oppressed and squeezed. The people are dying when they mine for silver. The women are being worked to death. In many cases, they are working 18 hours a day trying to make money, to make cloth for the wealthy. The priest, Father Hidalgo, is not one of the wealthy Jesuits. He is a man that has watched his church squeeze money from the people. He's watched corruption at the highest levels and the wealthy grinding the faces of the poor. And the crown indifferent to all of this and from thousands of miles away demanding more and more, and more. 
Rodalgo gathers the people of the town into the square. He did not do this in the church because this was not condoned by the church. But he did it under the eyes, under the open sky, under the eyes of God because he believed that God would have condoned this course of action. My friends and compatriots, there is no longer for us a king or taxes. This shameful justice, which only suits slaves, we have endured for three centuries as a sign of tyranny and servitude, a terrible stain that we will know how to wash away with our struggles. The time has come for our emancipation. The hour of our freedom has arrived. And if you know its great value, you will help me defend it from the ambitious grip of the tyrants. That is what started the Mexican War for Independence. Not a declaration of independence, but that little speech. It began. The first revolutionaries were not actually seeking total independence from Spain. They really weren't. Uh, they were, officially, they were rebelling against Napoleon and his occupation of Spain. Uh, but in reality, that was that, that was their alibi. That's, that was their excuse to try to pretend that they weren't actually trying to set up an independent nation. Uh, before Father Hidalgo, there had been sporadic uh, Native American rebellions. Uh, there had been uh, slave riots, minor strikes, protests over hunger. On more than one occasion, the battle cry was actually just death to bad government. But the group that followed Father Hidalgo, which was more similar to an angry mob than an actual army, uh, carried a banner that can be considered Mexico's first true flag. And the image on it was the Virgin of Guadalupe. Hidalgo and his men marched toward what is now Mexico City. Uh, they conquered several smaller cities. They turned out some of the missions. They attacked some of the greedy uh, Catholic strongholds. But when they ran into actual resistance when they ran into actual uh, a real army uh, spanish trained forces with all their weapons their guns they were they were killed adalgo did not survive they that encounter but it didn't matter the fires of revolution had been ignited and they would not be extinguished the initial successes and hidalgo himself was enough to inspire the people of Mexico to rise against their oppressors. The primary man that took up the second wave was another priest, Jose Maria Morelos. He was a military man who had joined the priesthood after serving in the army. He took up the flag, so to speak, the mantle, and continued to fight. He was a somewhat more humble man than uh, Father Hidalgo. Hidalgo had named himself uh, the, well, not humble title of His Most Serene Highness. Uh, Morello refused to adopt that and instead wanted to be called the Servant of the Nation. Morello is the one that, that really made this work. He took up the mantle, as I said, but he was more qualified. He was a military genius. Uh, Napoleon actually said of him, uh, give me three Morellos and I will conquer the world. So he was able to 
turn the rage of the mob into actual military victory. And he was very diplomatic and also really understood the limits of what could be done, which is something that over the next hundred years of Mexican history was severely lacking. People not really fully understanding the limits of what was possible. And the best example of that is being a diplomat, but also understanding the limits was he was shown a copy, uh, a draft of what would become the Mexican constitution that stipulated that while Mexico would be freed, it would still be officially under the sovereign of the Spanish king. A scenario that is not unlike modern-day Canada. Morello responded, Long live Spain, but a sister Spain, not one that rules America. Uh, Morello also got rid of the image of the Virgin of Guadalupe. I uh, took it off the flag and instead replaced it with the eagle on the cactus with the snake. He inspired his people, his soldiers, uh, loyalty and fanatical devotion in some cases. There was a one particular battle where a group of sp uh, soldiers that were charging up uh, the street in, in a small town was their only resistance was one single 12-year-old boy. And so they did not halt. They did not slow down. They just attacked, charging up. And when they were just a few feet from him, this 12-year-old boy took a torch and lit the cannon that had been loaded and hidden in the boxes. And while all of the horsemen charging him to ride him down, he fired a cannon and wiped all of them out. Very brave to stand there in silence and wait until the actual correct moment before taking action. And he did that for Morello. Morello's first uh, attempts at a constitution were quite liberal for the time. He decreed that the uh, slavery would be abolished within Mexico. There would be an elimination of the legal figure of the king uh, and that laws would be issued to eliminate poverty and to limit wealth, to take back from the tiny, tiny minority that had become extraordinarily rich, some of the wealth that had been created by the miners and the peasants, and give that back to them. Jobs were to be reserved from uh, for Mexicans, uh, meaning not for foreign people, not for Europeans. It was thought that this would cut down on unemployment, although it is questionable as to how that actually would have been fleshed out in practice. But more importantly, and perhaps most dangerously, he decreed an end to the payment of tributes. So back then, there were a huge number of payments that were being made from countries to other countries. These came about by wars. You lost the war as part of the surrender. You're going to have to pay forward X amount of dollars or X amount of gold or silver to the conquering country. It was very common, and it actually lasted up into the 20th century. Uh, it was a, kind of abolished after World War II because that was thought to be one of the large causes of World War II. But that's another story. Morello was too much of a revolutionary. He was brilliant, he was diplomatic, he was powerful, he was a very apt and capable military commander, and he 
moved the revolution from angry mobs into a coherent unit and coherent movement, rather, that was on the brink of success. But then it kind of stalled. He was captured. He was tried. He was executed. Both Hidalgo and Morello were gone. And it may have ended there, if not for the actions of two people, uh, the first of which is Vincent Guerrero. He would become the second president of Mexico, and he would become the first African-American, or African-Mexican, however you want to define it, and, uh, and first president of African descent in this hemisphere. Vincente Guerrero was hiding in a cave when the viceroy the, of New Spain that had been sent from Spain to kind of quell the rebellion after Hidalgo and Morello had been executed. Viceroy offered terms to the remaining rebels, the ones that were hiding, especially you know people like Vincente Guerrero, to come out and accept peace. And Guerrero wouldn't. He refused. He remained hidden in the mountains. The spark of revolution had not died the Viceroy sent a message to Guerrero by way of his father. Guerrero's father approached him and asked him that for the good of the people, would he surrender, would he accept his pardon and go peacefully? He responded, La patria es primero. The motherland is first. Second man is someone whose name I have a difficult time pronouncing. Augustine de Iturbide, I-T-U-R-B-I-D-E. I'm not entirely sure, so I'm just going to call him Augustine. Augustine was the general who was sent by the viceroy to attack Guerrero in the mountains to put an end to the rebellion after he had rejected the pardon. But upon meeting Guerrero and talking with him, Augustine switched sides. We don't really know why. Maybe it was simple greed that he wanted wealth and power for himself, and he realized this was a moment where he could grab it. Maybe it was something more, because it is undeniable that they made a deal that included a huge amount of the things, the revolutionary, the liberal things, that Guerrero and Hidalgo and Morello wanted. They declared Mexico to be an independent nation, it was a Catholic country, but the Catholic power would be slightly limited. It was the home of the Spaniards, the Creoles, the Native Americans, the Africans, and the Mestizos alike, all of whom would receive equal standing under the law. And this is something that is new in Mexico, and although... At that time, it was officially claimed in the U.S. really was not true until much, much later. Slavery was outlawed here in Mexico. And all of these things were, they were possible only because of Augustine and Guerrero meeting together, sitting down and hashing them out. The ideals of the revolution lived on, and it was Augustine that would enforce them. But having seized power... He did not go back on his word. All of those things remained true. They turned around, and they, the now unified army marched on the seat of Spanish power in Mexico City. 
The Spanish authorities at that point realized that their cause was lost. They were not going to be able to contain the fires of rebellion. Augustine and Guerrero arrived at the capital on September 27, 1821, 11 years after Hidalgo had given his speech. And thus, Mexico was free. Three centuries minus one month. It was 299 years and 11 months after the fall of Tenochtitlan that Mexico received their independence from Spain. Spain lost all of the rights over New Spain. It wasn't just what is now Mexico. It was everything. Most of the South American lands had broken free uh, by this point. And so he, his empire essentially lasted from or went from uh, California down to Panama, but not, uh, not lower than that. Augustine became the first emperor of Mexico, a constitutional emperor, as he was fond of saying. Well, because it was a Congress, uh, a representation of the people in theory, uh, not a god or a pope or another monarch or a military that placed the crown on his head. The power came from the people, which is a marked difference than what was kind of being done around the world, especially in Europe at that point, where the church would crown the monarchs uh, or Napoleon would crown himself, that sort of thing. Five million square kilometers of New Spain was now Mexico, and what would they do with it? The Spanish mayor, Miguel Bataler, had said, I cannot imagine a worse punishment to Mexicans than to let them govern themselves. That is racist, it is ominous, it is slightly insulting, and unfortunately, it's true. But we're going to cover that in the next one. Well, no, the next one is going to be about Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Uh, but the one after that will be about the chaos of the next hundred years. And it was chaotic. The next hundred years was marked by chaos, uh, by coups. The second president, Guerrero, uh, lasted eight months. The one after him, they, they deposed him violently, lasted less than a week. Some of them lasted less than a day. It was chaotic. It was not a good time. And it led to the Mexican Revolution. But we'll get there. So this has been Storied History. Uh, my name is Charles Chestnut. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, they're going to be coming out on a more regular pace from now on as I have finally, or, you know, close to it, actually moved into my house and unpacked and set everything up in kind of the way I wanted to, which is rather pleasant. I've got to be honest. Uh, so shortly after this, we're going to be doing the Twitch channel, which will be up uh, not too far away because I have actually built my massive beast of a gaming computer and it's going to be fun. I hope you do join in, but it's, uh, yeah, this is going to be, that's a totally different flavor. That's just me having fun on playing video games and talking about the history of the games and the people and the characters involved, that sort of thing. I'm looking forward to it, but, um, yeah, not everybody's cup of tea. I get that. If this is your cup of tea, if you did enjoy this podcast, then, uh, please do hit the subscribe button. I will, they will be coming out, as I said, at a more frequent pace. So, signing off, my name is Charles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. Hit the subscribe button, and I will get the next story to you. Thanks for listening. 
Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut with audio production and original music by Seamus O'Connor. If you enjoy what we do, please subscribe, rate us, like us, follow us wherever you can. We'll be getting more episodes to you on a regular basis. Our next episode will be a Halloween special coming up at the end of this, this month. And then uh, we'll continue on with the history of Mexico. Hope you've enjoyed them. <laughs>